Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rural Spark, the podcast on rural innovation in Canada, both social and economic. I'm your host, Helen Murphy. One of our favorite topics on Rural Spark is digital connectivity for rural communities. This week, we take a look at how some Indigenous communities are taking the matter into their own hands and building some really innovative models for other rural and remote communities, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, to learn from and emulate. Our guest this week is Dr. Rob McMahon. He's a professor in communications and community engagement at the University of Alberta. Rob co-founded the First Mile Connectivity Consortium, FMCC, a national nonprofit association of Indigenous technology organizations. And his research focuses on the development and use of internet technologies by rural, remote, and Indigenous communities across Canada. Hello, Rob, and welcome to Rural Spark. Yeah, hi, Helen. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Um, Rob, can you give us an idea of the size of the challenge that we have when we talk about broadband connectivity for some of the uh, remote Indigenous communities in Canada and maybe other remote communities as well, and, and why we see some of these communities mobilizing to find their own solutions? Uh, yeah, sure. So, and I would say, um, you know, when you're talking about remote Indigenous communities, of course, that's in the northern uh, territories, you know, the Yukon, Nunavut, Northwest Territories, but also in the northern regions of the provinces. Right. Um, and we're also seeing uh, both Indigenous communities and non-Indigenous communities having broadband challenges in the south as well. Um, so I live in Edmonton, and just south of us, about a 45-minute hour drive in Masquachis, um, Bruce Buffalo, he's a young fellow there, setting up and providing his own internet service to the community. You know, they're they're having challenges there, too, just right off the number two highway between Edmonton and Calgary. So it is quite a large uh, challenge in a lot of sort of rural, remote, northern communities, indigenous communities in Canada. I wanted to say, too, that uh, it's starting to be recognized as a challenge. So we have that, you know, recognition in the research side and in media and stuff, but also governments um, been releasing reports on this. We have uh, the Auditor General of Canada pointed this out. We had a House of Commons Committee on Rural Broadband. So it's starting to uh, get more recognition that, you know, there are these pockets of Canada that are still disconnected. And when I say disconnected, it's both an access issue. So people, you know, they don't actually have access to fast internet or reliable internet, but it's also a cost issue. So oftentimes uh, in these types of regions, it's, it's quite more expensive than we're used to in places like Ottawa and Edmonton. One of the things too is, there's not a lot of data, especially in the remote communities, about what uh, access is like, what their quality of service is, what their speed is. So, you know, kind of the benchmark report is released every year from the CRTC. And, you know, they talk about uh, right now, uh, I just checked it actually before this call. In 2018, um, the North, which is Yukon, Nunavut, and Northwest Territories, um, only 76% of people have access to household subscriptions. And then as well, uh, in terms of availability, uh, if we look at speeds of 16 megabytes per second download, the amount of people actually getting that is really low. So only 54% of people in NWT and 61% of people in the Yukon can actually subscribe to that or are actually subscribing to that. And then if you kind of break it out into the actual communities, you can imagine uh, the majority of the population there is in you know centers like Yellowknife, Anuvik, uh, Whitehorse. So when you get into those smaller communities, we really don't know what it's like, but we can imagine it's, um, you know, it's quite slow, it's, it's quite unreliable, and it's quite expensive. So I just wanted to point that out, that mm -hmm. even in areas where we think about the territories or the provinces as, you know, quite, you know, northern 
within them too, there's quite a bit of a digital divide there as well. Yeah, so with respect to that, um, even though there are those challenges of infrastructure and cost, people are really interested in getting the internet. I've traveled a lot to these regions, both in the provinces and in the territories, and always hearing like people want to use Facebook, you know, they they want to connect with their friends and family, they want to access online health, they want to take classes on the internet, set up home businesses or, or other businesses. But hitting these challenges, so in some cases we are seeing people getting together either to build, like literally build their own internet, you know, Bruce Buffalo climbing on the roof of his house, setting up antenna, you know, people uh, working with uh, satellite systems, getting those up and running. But also um, in terms of advocating for uh, internet connectivity, um, we have the former mayor of uh, Iqaluit, Madeline Redfern, is a strong voice in Nunavut, talking about the importance of connectivity up there. So, yeah, we see people getting involved in all kinds of ways, whether it's policy media or uh, just, you know, rolling up their sleeves and doing it themselves. Right. And you talked a bit there, Rob, about the download speed. Is is that kind of um, the figure you cited? Is that kind of the minimum of what we expect today? Let me let me put it this way. It's not too bad. Uh, 16 uh, megabytes per second download I mentioned. However, it is significantly below the standard that was set by the CRTC, which is 50 Right. Um, so people can still use the internet and do things, but it's it's not ideal, and it is quite far below what the uh, standard that's been set. And I will also say that if you have that amount coming into your household, of course, if you have more users, your speed goes down. So you can imagine a household, and in particular in the north, we have people um, with quite large households. If they all have devices, uh, that speed gets kind of split up between them, and it, it gets uh, quite slower. So. Yeah, and I think that can happen in a lot of places in Canada. I know we had uh, Minister Bernadette Jordan, uh, the Rural Economic Development uh, Minister, here with us the other day. We talked a lot about uh, digital connectivity, and she said where she comes from in uh, rural Nova Scotia, after 8 o'clock at night, it's it's really, really hard to get connected because uh, others are trying to get online at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, um, because... Of course, like the more people on a network, the more congested, just like a highway, right? And um, oftentimes the speeds we get are portrayed as advertised speeds, but in reality, the actual speeds are are often quite a bit um, slower. So yeah, that's a great point to make. Right. So as we start to look at solutions and how we can support communities in making solutions themselves, tell us a little bit about this First Mile Connectivity Consortium, known as the FMCC. Mm -hmm. Um, How did that come about and what exactly is its mandate? Sure. Yeah. So what the FMCC is, is a, it's a nonprofit national association of, of indigenous service providers. Uh, so these are companies that have been set up by First Nations communities, um, in some cases, tribal councils, in others, you know, sort of collections of communities working together, whether it's a nonprofit or a different type of organizational structure. But these are the groups that are actually developing and delivering technology services of all kinds to people living in there um, in these uh, remote indigenous communities. So what these groups decided to do was sort of, you know, that idea of having a collective voice in order to be um, to put forward areas of common interest or policy interventions. Um, So kind of put them together, um, whether it's towards um, groups like the CRTC, the regulator or other government groups. So that was one reason um, they got together was to uh, kind of listen policy. Um, And then another was this idea of exchanging resources, exchanging knowledge, information, lessons learned. All of them are kind of working together to deliver connectivity at an affordable rate at high quality of service. Um, And all of them um, 
really have a strong focus on the delivery of public services, you know, using uh, connectivity to deliver health, education, this kind of stuff. So it's also kind of a forum where they can exchange those types of ideas and best practices and challenges as well. Terrific. And it's a place, I guess, where some of the success stories are being being shared. So uh, what are some of the successes that you've seen actually coming out of the consortium so far? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about some of the policy work because that's kind of collectively done by the group. And so a couple of years ago, so you and I were in that the standard that was set by the CRTC of 50 megabytes down, 10 megabytes up. So one of, I think, the successes of our, our group, as well as other groups who participated, was um, setting that standard. So there was a hearing held over a year, actually, uh, by the CRTC to determine what should be the basic minimum standard available to all communities across Canada, no matter where they're located, what should be that standard set. And at that time, it was five down and one up. Mm -hmm. And um, through the efforts of a lot of different groups, public advocacy groups, you know, consumer groups, um, as well as a lot of uh, Indigenous groups um, making these presentations, was to bump that up tenfold to uh, 50 down, 10 up. And then as well, um, one of the other, uh, I guess, like outcomes of that was that there had to be a data unlimited um, option offered to people no matter where they are because we have heard in a lot of remote communities that, you know, people who are downloading a lot, you know, using the internet a lot, we're getting penalized. They'd have to pay these huge uh, fees for data overage. So that decision also said that there had to be, um, you know, this this unlimited bandwidth option. Uh, and then to everybody's surprise, I think, uh, very happy surprise that the CRTC also uh, started up a new broadband fund about $750 million, million dollars over, I believe, five years, where they would release it in stages um, over the years. And the FMCC had really argued, as well as with other groups, to make that fund available to community-based providers. So not just the big telcos, but also uh, local and regional-based providers, nonprofits, so that they could access that fund. So I see that as, as a win for the group. Uh, and then when they started to break out the criteria of of the fund and, and what applicants should be um, included in their application, uh, both as a benefit to the project but also to the end users, was that there was some inclusion of community consultation requirements. Uh, so applicants had to d demonstrate that they had consulted with communities about their projects and about the potential impacts. And there's also specific language around Aboriginal and treaty rights. So that type of stuff, I think that FMCC group's quite proud of because it attempts to make sure that there's community involvement, both at the ability to deliver broadband services as their own providers, but also uh, getting involved to ensure that if other groups are delivering services, that they have a say in, in monitoring and ensuring that they're benefiting from that. Right. And when we see an Indigenous community deciding to become its own broadband service provider, of course, there's there's a training component that's needed there to get people up to speed on, on the technology and how they're going to look after this themselves. And of course, with any kind of training program and probably particularly when it involves uh, technology, there's going to be some challenges of that in rural areas. Do you see some innovative approaches happening to make sure that the training gets done and gets delivered in the way that we need it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would say, too, because I think some people may be wondering, you know, how many of these Indigenous community networks are out there? How big are they? Are For they sure. sustainable? 
And I can say that, I, like, one of the things the FMCC does is track some of that. So on our firstmile.ca website, we have something like 80 stories that show these types of projects happening. And some of them going back to the earliest days in the internet. You know, I talk about, um, you know, KNET in Northwest Ontario. This is a huge network. It involves satellite, fiber optics, you know, wireless towers. So regional as well as local. And they've been going since the very early days of the internet, you know, 1994. These networks, like they're, you know, some of them may be small and, you know, serving a few dozen people because the community is small, but others are covering huge regions. So it can be done, it is being done, and they are sustainable. Um, so I wanted to note that. And then in terms of the training, um, absolutely, like there is very much a focus on, you know, this idea of digital literacy involving not just sort of, you know, the use of applications, social media, Microsoft Word, things like that, but also setting up and operating broadband systems, testing speeds, that kind of stuff. And we do see a lot of interest in these communities. You know, people, of course, know what they're paying and they know what their service is. So they're interested in getting the tools to test that. So that's quite, uh, you know, of quite a bit of interest to people. With respect to operating things, yeah, I think you're right that sometimes there are challenges. You know, you don't have huge populations, but, you know, I think there is a demand for local IT. So you could imagine somebody, you know, maybe having a full-time job where they support IT at the local school or nursing station, you know, kind of uh, aggregate across a few different organizations in the community. Um, so there can be training around, you know, how do you set up the systems? How do you monitor them? How do you, um, you know, if somebody's home network goes down, how do you fix that? Of course, like the training has to be customized to fit the context of remote communities. Oftentimes, it's very expensive to send people to training. Um, so we do see online training. Um, there's some experiments with that. KNET's been doing that for quite a few years where they bring in people. They do this also with water treatment management. So there's a centralized place and people would fly in, do some training, and then go back to their home community and then be supported remotely, whether it's through phone or, or through um, sort of like, you know, remote monitoring devices. So we're seeing some interesting innovations there in terms of, you know, both like providing that sustainable employment that you know, rewards the people who do the training and, and work in the community, but also in the, the delivery of the training itself. For sure. And I, when I was looking at some of the stories, you mentioned the stories, uh, success stories, and, and uh, some of the experiences shared on your website, Rob. It does seem to be that young people are, are often the driving force for reasons I think that are kind of obvious, that uh, they really want to have these connectivities for a variety of things. And it seems to me that young people are, are maybe getting involved with some of these organizations, even founding organizations that are going to help provide broadband services in their community. What are some of the um, you know, pros and cons of that in terms of, I think, young people, of course, there's probably a high turnover rate in terms of when they're going on to other education and, and other uh, priorities in their lives? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that does happen. I mean, even myself as an example, you know, I grew up in a relatively small community. I went out and, um, you know, worked for a little bit and then came. Sometimes people come back. So I've, I've come back for years um, at a time. And then, you know, people are moving in and out of their communities for sure. I think you're right in terms of pointing out that the young people, they're drawn to that work. They're, they are the innovators. They're doing some fantastic stuff. There are cases where people want to go back and raise their families at home. So we do see that. There's also attempts to kind of spread the, the capacity throughout the community. So, of course, the training is important to have a, a local champion that's, that's going to be there, that's going to be driving this stuff. But I think as well, 
spreading that out so more people get involved within the community so that in case somebody does end up, you know, pursuing education or work opportunities that, you know, the capacity remains within the community. So there's ways to do that in terms of the technical infrastructure, how that gets managed, whether there's, you know, for example, some, I, I talked about the remote support. So we see that, for example, in, in Northern Quebec, the Tamani network in Nunavik, they have a combination of people on the ground in the communities, but they also do the network management from a regional center. So they kind of work hand in hand there. So there's ways to set up the networks that kind of build in a little bit of that, um, I guess, contingency. Yeah, I would also say that although young people, you know, they may they may move out of the community, we're all we're also seeing people, uh, of course, coming back once they're a little bit older and then bringing all that experience with them. Rob, you were involved with the Indigenous Connectivity Summit in Edmonton last year. So that brought leaders and innovators in this area from other countries together to share some promising practices and lessons learned. Were there some good models from other countries shared there that might help shape further solutions in Canada? Just so people get a sense of what that uh, event was. So we held a training day in Edmonton. And then we actually went up to Inuvik and had uh, a series of panels and presentations that featured work both from Canada and then, as you say, from international uh, examples, like from the U.S. and and even from uh, Latin America. We had people there from Mexico, Argentina, and elsewhere. And both of those events, the training day and the panels, were exactly as you say, you know, sort of around exchanging ideas around sort of organizational models, funding and policy, technical aspects. So I think there was a lot of information shared on all sides. I would say that there was some very interesting work uh, by the Navajo down in uh, the States. They actually have their own telecommunications commission. So they have their own regulatory body uh, that covers their territories, which is really fascinating. And then uh, in Mexico, actually, there's a group there, uh, Red Days. They're a nonprofit there, and they work with a group called Rhizomatica where they've advocated and been successful for getting a set aside for uh, cellular spectrum for indigenous peoples. So indigenous peoples actually get a a slice of the radio spectrum so that they can set up and use their own uh, cellular phone networks, which I find really interesting and, and could really help in some of these remote regions in Canada where the way that our our mobile phone spectrum is currently set up is that it blankets huge areas, which um, provides good good services to a lot of the higher population areas. But for those areas where there isn't such a strong business case, we're seeing very uh, limited uh, mobile phone spectrum. So that was really interesting uh, example from Mexico. And then in Argentina, there's uh, a group there called the LibreMesh Project. And that's kind of, you know, open source software, that kind of idea, but it's around mesh networks. So local, you know, kind of uh, wireless networks. So you imagine people have wireless networks in their homes, uh, but these are at a community scale, so you can kind of distribute these across a community. They look like a little clamshell. You open them up, and then they interconnect with one another. So for areas that may not have a lot of local infrastructure, it's a it's a really interesting solution there. Uh, so we saw some cool technology there, and um, of course, like just uh, getting together and talking through some of the regulatory issues and some common challenges uh, across these regions too. We're finding things like you know, access to hydro poles for uh, these types of networks uh, often is quite costly. Just to access the pole, if you want to hang fiber optics there, you have to pay that, and then you often have to pay a monthly fee on top of that. Um, So we are hearing that as as a challenge. So 
there's technical stuff, but there's also kind of the other, um, everything that comes along with uh, building and operating a network as well. Yeah, there's going to be the, a fair share of bureaucratic stuff to, to wade through, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, but it's, I mean, people are really open to sharing, um, you know, both like even business models or organizational models, they, they make those available to others interested in doing this work. So there's information sharing, but there's also quite a community developing around it. So it's across borders. And uh, that was the second one. They're planning one uh, next November as well. So I think the, the hope is to make this an annual event where uh, Indigenous peoples from around the world get together and, and talk through this stuff. Terrific. So pretty exciting. It was, yeah. it was a great time, yeah. It's great to see this kind of sharing happening um, across borders and international discussion. And I'm wondering about within Canada. We see that, and you've seen up close, that uh, there's some Indigenous communities that are really developing some innovative models. And I'm wondering how they are being shared now with um, through the consortium, but maybe there's other ways too, with other Indigenous communities across Canada, but also non-Indigenous communities that could really look at where there's some opportunities here to to duplicate some success stories and and scale up initiatives yeah no absolutely i mean people are really really open and um you know they're they're very generous with their time and with their development so yeah i'm glad you um you raised that 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 that, you know a lot of the times um all communities but indigenous communities are really pushing the envelope in this stuff and Mm. are open to sharing it yeah, we do see uh, conferences like uh, the Indigenous Connectivity Summit. We do have other examples of conferences specific to rural areas. So um, there's some some conferences, uh, one called um, SURF is the uh, acronym. It's the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, I believe. And there's people there interested in, in rural connectivity. Uh, in Alberta, we've got uh, Digital Futures, which was um, held twice a year for the past five years or so that brought together, you know, First Nations innovators as well as uh, people working in municipal government, economic development officers, and, um, you know, the provincial government, the CRTC. It's kind of a forum to to talk through this stuff and to exchange ideas. So we do have some cases uh, down in the States. There's quite a lot going on. There's, a, there's actually a magazine called Broadband Communities that's all around community broadband. And uh, an organization called the the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, they have kind of a community networks, community broadband um, branch, I guess, within their institute. Sometimes people, you know, they they jump right to the technology, you know, Mm -hmm. mesh networks, Wi-Fi, you know, IP addresses, all that stuff. But I would say there's just as much, if not more, uh, work to be done more on the social and and organizational development side. You know, a lot of our colleagues... um, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous contexts talk about, you know, 70%, 80% of the work is the social part. Uh, It's getting together, it's sharing these ideas, building out the business models, thinking through the policy stuff. So even for people who may not be as interested in the technology, it's um, a way to get involved, I think, more generally in uh, community and working together to solve a challenge. That's fascinating in a lot of different ways. I mean, I've, I've been involved in researching this stuff and I'm you know, I love it. I mean, I, every day I learn something new. And I wanted to just kind of make that point that it's, yeah, it covers all aspects of our lives now. You know, everything from our pr- personal privacy to, you know, how we access health and education to how we build and sustain rural communities. You know, it's quality of life that enables people to live in a rural community um, and gain access to the same services and, and opportunities as people in urban centers. So I just wanted to note that, that I think 
there's always like interest in sharing this stuff and in, in talking through ideas. So I think there, yeah, if people did want to get involved, there's, there's plenty of opportunities for that, but it's just finding the right forums and, and, you know, finding ways to nurture and scale that up and build those connections. Um, I had a colleague who talked about, it's not about community networks. It's about community networking. You know, it's that verb of just getting together and chatting and seeing what emerges. Right, and I'm sure as groups get together to talk about these broadband issues, like you were saying, it touches kind of every aspect of quality of life in a community. So it's like pulling a thread. I think it's going to lead to other discussions and maybe other innovations that you know move a community forward and help address some of those issues. One of the things I find really fascinating is it's so community specific. You can think about you know an area that is interested in tourism, right? Like that's specific local to that area. It's a way to think through how digital technologies might support that. Um, it could, you know, it's, it's, there are some common challenges and common innovations, but so much of it is really uh, locally specific. And I find that just fascinating. I'm wondering, Rob, what you, what you think about the current investments that we're hearing about in the recent federal budget. Of course, investments in broadband internet for across Canada uh, featured prominently in that budget. It includes a target of 2030 for all Canadians to have access to broadband internet. Um, how encouraged are you by those investments? And um, do, you, do you have a feel for how they're being received, those announcements in some of the communities that you're connected with on this? It's very positive to see this this investment and as well all the work that's being done at, at the different uh, levels of government. You know, the, I had mentioned earlier in your show the, uh, you know, the Daughter General Report. Um, we get like the House of Commons study on rural broadband. Right. So really good to see both the investment but also that focus on, you know, ensuring that the monitoring of those funds and, and that the infrastructure that gets built is being monitored and is uh, – you know, responding to the needs of peoples in the communities and um, involving things like community consultation and, and recognition of Aboriginal and treaty rights. So I wanted to say, like, the, the funds is, is great, but it's also fantastic to see those other elements. I would say, you know, people, of course, are encouraged to see that funding and that attention. I think it's important to consider the sustainability of the infrastructure that gets built. You know, having the funds available to actually build the infrastructure fantastic but how is it going to be sustained over time and of course the people who are living and working in those communities uh, so I think that's really important to consider that it's um, you know just making the systems uh, integrated and, and sustainable within those spaces and I think that's also an economic development opportunity for people in those communities that they can view these things not just as a way to bring infrastructure and connectivity to consumers as as the people using the services but also getting involved in delivering those services themselves. Uh, so I think it, it provides a bit of support for an economic base in these areas. So I think that's really important to consider. I think, too, the affordability question. You know, if it's a for-profit business model, we're dealing with very remote regions and they're very small population. Uh, so how do you actually uh, make service there affordable, you know, especially if it's a for-profit venture that, um, of course, has... Uh, as a legal obligation to its shareholders. So I think that's a question too, again, with sustainability, affordability. And I think too, the monitoring piece, we are seeing that, you know, by groups, of course, like the Auditor General, but also within the regions themselves, within the communities themselves, making sure that what's delivered is actually, you know, being held to account. So we talked earlier about, you know, when everybody's online and things slow down, mm -hmm. um, you know, how do we make sure that it's not, 
inadvertently penalizing people in some of these smaller regions that they, they get what they pay for at all hours of the day at a reasonable price. Um, and then the last piece I would say is, you know, there has to also be accompanied with all of this work, a bit of a review on, um, you know, it has to do with competition. So if, if groups are nonprofit community based, they want to set up and operate their own internet organization, you know, they need to have fair access to the actual bandwidth. If it's wholesale provided, like is the, is the pricing uh, fair and reasonable? You know, do they have access to things like the hydro poles where they can actually uh, put up their own fiber if that's the way the community wants to go? Can they access that cellular phone spectrum that I talked about? Or is the license so big and covering such a large area that it pushes the pricing um, way above what a community-based organization could hope to access? Um, so I think as well as providing uh, the resources such as the funding and, and reviewing the things, reviewing the you know the consultation requirements and stuff, there also has to be ways to support local and regional economic development in this as well. I see it as a resource um, for people to use and to develop as well as um, as kind of like a a way that they can get on the internet as a consumer. Well, thanks, Rob. You've raised some excellent uh, questions that we can follow up on uh, with Rural Spark because uh, digital connectivity is something that we're touching regularly um, from time to time on our episodes. And uh, we do want to look at further into some of these practical questions around uh, once we set up in a community, how we're going to maintain that longer term and some of the uh, issue, other issues around affordability, et cetera, that, that you've raised. So thanks very much for raising those. And we'll also uh, keep an eye on what's happening with the consortiums. I think there's some, some great stories still to come for that so um thanks very much for being on our show today yeah great thanks so much for having me okay we'll talk soon thanks bye Bye. and thanks to all of you for joining us this week on rural spark our team includes content producer Catherine murphy and technical producer tara seabarth music is by jason shaw we wish you all the very best for the week ahead in your part of rural canada